Hi, my name is David, and uh, this is the second episode of Crumpy uh, uh, Old Coders, uh, the podcast. And uh, this episode uh, today um, is, uh, yeah, about polymorph linguists, <laughs> a, philosoph- <laughs> a philosophical discussion about several programming languages. Uh, and uh, as the title is telling you, maybe already. Uh, we are going to talk a bit about uh, uh, different programming languages, pros, cons, uh, but not just them, right? Because this is anyway a kind of um, yeah controversial topic, let's say. We also talk a bit about um, yeah how to best learn a new programming language and stuff like that. Okay, um, so I have with me uh, Thomas. Uh, Thomas, would you like to introduce yourself before I... Or give a little bit or an insight about or why we called the, the episode like that, right? Sure. Yeah. Hello, it's me again, Thomas. Um, I've already introduced myself last time. Uh, not much has changed, but I may have a new job now. So that's the change. I, I may be working for Amazon Web Services soon. Apparently, I'm starting on the 7th September. Very excited hey, congr- about this. Congratulations, right? Wow, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. It should be it should be interesting. I, maybe I'll t- I talk about it a little bit more next time when I had my first days and all that, and I can and and I know what I can talk about and what I shouldn't be talk about. So uh, what I shouldn't talk about. So yeah, let's leave that to next yeah. time. But AWS, yeah. yay! Yeah, it's just because all those AWS developers are listening to our podcast, right? All, all of the millions, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> millions. <laughs> millions. <laughs> okay, a- anyway, yeah, my name is David, and uh, I-, I still have the same kind of job. <laughs> so no news there, but uh, yeah, uh, I introduced myself already in the last episode, so nothing new, new there. Um, yeah, uh, maybe... Important today is that we changed the style of the uh, our episode a bit. Uh, the last time we had more kind of interview style. This time, uh, we we try to have a kind of open uh, discussion together. So now, I promise that I will explain uh, how I came up with the name of the episode. So one of the <laughs> <laughs> one of the tasks uh, you have to to do if you record a podcast is to think about names for episodes and uh, some of the names are I also have another podcast or anyway uh, for internal purposes um, um, inside of a customer but uh, uh, some of the names are quite fancy and nice and so on right I, I would not say that I'm the best person to come up with names but uh, I thought it's a kind of nice joke to call it uh, the polymorph linguist right uh, because uh, yeah polymorph polymorphism is in bio- biology are uh, the occurrence of more than one form in the same population of a species right and uh, the same kind of concept can be seen in uh, object-oriented programming languages where you basically are yeah can inherit from a base class uh, or interface and uh, the the child classes can have uh, different uh, behaviors and uh, so on right or you can overload methods or uh, you can use generic types uh, and stuff like this right so i i kind of thought uh, given the fact that we are talking about um, the properties of programming languages <laughs> and that uh, this would be a nice joke because uh, yeah 
um, someone who is able to develop by using multiple uh, programming languages is uh, able to speak multiple languages. So, but that this makes a linguist, but uh, or maybe close enough. And, uh, <laughs> uh, polymorphism is what I just explained, <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway, I, I found it nice, right? Uh, if someone has better ideas for titles, then just let us know, right? <laughs> I like it. I'm not sure the joke would work if I would tell it to my mum, but you know, I think keeping the target audience in mind, I think we're okay. I like it. Yeah, <laughs> I think so too. So, but uh, yeah, uh, usually jokes that need to be explained are that much, right? Are not good jokes. So maybe, uh, yeah. Anyway, fine. Um, <laughs> at least we enjoy it, and that's all that matters, right? Exactly. Okay. Okay, Thomas, um, may, may we start with you, right? Um, um, so the experience of different uh, programming languages, uh, um, and I would then talk a bit about my experience as well. Um, I, I guess everyone, right, you, me, and most of developers outside there have experience with several programming languages, and they don't stick just with one uh, with their entire life, right? Uh, so yeah. how, how did your journey look like then? Yeah, it's probably fair to say you switch around. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very old, you know, hence sort of the name of the podcast as well. So the first code I've written was on a Robotron KC eighty five slash one. I don't know if you if you remember these things or have. I had ever... I had one I had one I think oh, I had version had two two version two I think or my one already my already slots for extension cards and stuff like I, that. I think the version two was called KC eighty seven, wasn't it? Could be. Yeah. Was there ever an eighty five slash two? I don't know. But maybe you're right. I, I don't yeah, know. Could be wrong. I don't know. I, I don't know anymore. But uh, it was matter. black and it had yes. uh, it had an extension card for for <laughs> what we call the. Uh, yeah, a tape drive basically, right? A tape so drive. Attend. They had they had a little <laughs> keyboard made with little sort of long rubber keys. They were just yeah, a, a rubbery exactly. line, so an absolute exactly. usability nightmare if you think about it. But that's yeah. the sort of thing we have back then. So Robotron, being an East German company, as I'm sure everybody knows who listens to this, <laughs> uh, I think it was a clone of the Xilox Z80. You yeah, know, there, I there thought it's a, a clone of, of the C64, but um, yeah, maybe not. Which right. probably the C64 is also a clone to Z80 or the other way around. I don't know. I'm sure listeners could, could you know, solve this for us in, in the comments in some way. Um, I'm sure there are people knowledge about this. So, yeah, so Visual Basic. There were games on tape as well. I remember some sort of East German Pac-Man game. Well, it wasn't visual basic, right? It was just basic. I it was, yeah, sorry. Did I say visual? Yeah, just basic. Yeah. Basic. Yeah, basic. Basic, just basic. Basic, basic. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, to be honest, I would like to get my hands on one of those machines again, but I'm not sure that it's well, very easy. Maybe Obviously, I can help with this. Maybe, uh, maybe I can help with this. Or I should have s uh, ah. some, maybe one store somewhere, right? I have to double check. Mm. In my parents' house, if they didn't throw it away, then uh, it should ah. be still there. That'd be um, cool. So m my one, so the second version, if it is the second version. A anyway, right? So yeah. Yeah, that's um, pretty cool. Because, yeah, cause I, I never had one. So there was it, it was a coding club where I was in, it was late 80s. So I would have been 13, 12, that sort of age. 
you know. And I, I know there are emulators out there where you can stick an emulator on a Raspberry Pi and, you know, there's your KC85. But it's not the same. Without the rubber keyboard, you know, what's the point? So, yeah, sorry. So, so that was that. That was that. That was sort of the first bullet point in my 10 bullet point list. So, uh, yeah, so later on, I think in 92, I, I sort of, I, I nagged. I nagged my family to get me a PC. And I finally got one in 92, which I was very grateful. It was a 386 back then, 4 megabyte of RAM and a immense 130 megabyte HDD. I mean, the sounds, yeah, than, the sounds silly. Better than mine. Yeah, better than mine. I, I had a 260 or 286 with uh, with uh, one megabyte of RAM and uh, 40 megabyte of disk space, right? An IBM PS1. Uh, oh, was my PS1. First an P original was IBM. was my first PC. Yeah, an original IBM. Ooh, there must be rocks IB something now. I, I don't know. I gave it away to a friend when yeah. I got a, a better one, right? So, yeah, so did I. Mine was a Western Digital. So there you go. I mean, these, these, the numbers sound silly today, but these were, you know, top-notch machines back in the day. You know, nobody had 130 megabyte of hard disk space. You know, Except insane. you, right? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I was the pride of the village yeah. back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> So, amongst yeah. the nerds at least yeah exactly right? <laughs> street cred street cred for nerds yeah, yeah so i learned turbo pascal on that machine and i coded a lot in turbo pascal so that was my and that was my well what do you count it as the first language or the second language if you include the robotron kc85 basic i don't know it's so, a second one then, right? If you if you basically one. learn two Pascal second uh, and first yeah. basic, then I would count it as a second one. Yeah, right? I, I think that's fair. I think that's how numbers work. So yeah, I think we're good. Pascal. Yeah. So I, I don't remember what I wrote. Some sort of game where you had to train your mental maths, you know, what 78 plus 59 or something like that. And you get points. Yeah, that was the thing. Yeah, so that was good fun. And later I got a book by a guy called Charles Petzold. I think this will this will trigger some memories by the older listeners. Charles Petzold, I think there was at some point there was programming for Windows or something it was called, and there was one before programming for PC. And that would there was basically a documentation how the PC works onto sort of all, pretty much the hardware level. Right, so what interrupts are there? You know, what happens if you press a key, right? That key triggers an interrupt in the CPU, and then that key press is handled in some way, you know, that sort of level. And that got me into writing assembly. So I wrote a little thing where you have a, a clock, so just the current time, a clock in your terminal window. Because back then, terminal window was all we had. Sure, you could start Windows, but why would you, right? So there was a little clock in there. You know, and this was the time when we had uh, computer science classes in school, uh, that sort of thing. So my school project was an assembly, much to the despair of the teacher who had to read to all that assembly. Yeah, you know, <laughs> sorry it's actually interesting. It's actually interesting. When I was in school, I, I mean, later then I I went to a, let's say high school with a special focus on computer science. So, for this school, my statement isn't true. But before that, right, 
Uh, I have to say that most of my computer science teachers were actually not teaching computer science, right? They they yeah, they basically Excel. just uh, explained how to use Microsoft Works for <laughs> DOS or something like this, right? That's true. Well, you know, it's at least something. Some, you know, basic computer literacy is very important, isn't it? I'm not sure. Well, it's the same today, by the way, right? At least here in Germany. So I'm located in Germany. Thomas is in... Uh, England and uh, here in Germany or uh, Bavaria, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm not mentioning the name of the school. It's still the same stuff, right? So if Is I look it? at the uh, yeah. at the classes uh, of my of my 12 year old son, uh, where they kind of learn computer science, so I think they even don't call it computer science, but it's intended to be computer science, right? Informatic, um, right? It, yeah, yeah, informatics or <laughs> data processing and uh, data processing is something which you can kind of define in a wide way. Uh, it's also yeah. like, uh, yeah, uh, taking some pictures and putting them into spreadsheets or whatever, right? Which is, uh, which is from my point of view, um, a little bit wasted time if you give a computer science class or informatics class, right? You should actually learn how to program and stuff like this. They have some some non non mandatory uh, uh, courses where you can learn how to control a robot and stuff like this, right? So a bit of robotics and, and this is nicer, but um, let's say the the standard stuff is actually quite disappointing from my point of view. Yeah, I mean, you have to start something. But for, for us, it's the same in, in the UK over here. They learn, uh, you know, Excel word processing, that all that stuff. And also, you know, that there's a, a big emphasis, which I like about safety, you know, talking to strangers over the internet, all that sort of stuff. So they get, it gets really drilled into them, you know, to, to, to recognize the signs of grooming, you know, when they are being groomed and all of that stuff. So that's very good. But later they, they do, they do get some meaty stuff. So I remember helping them with some, python projects so they had python uh, some sort of assignment it was something about voting i don't quite remember and i think that was probably the start of my intense hate relationship with python you know oh, okay. it's come to this later. <laughs> it's come to this later <laughs> we'll <right>? come to that <laughs> I, I actually i actually like python but let's talk about this later um, yeah that's, maybe that's later. Um, we, right. we talked, we just talked about, uh, let's say, programming languages you used in the past. And I think the last you mentioned was Turbo Pascal, right? Turbo Pascal, right. So Turbo Pascal, then assembly, and then sort of keeping with the low level uh, topic. So back in uni, there was a project for ST Microelectronics. They wanted to implement the DALI lighting protocol. I'm not sure how relevant this is today anymore. But that was that. So I had a massive hardware emulator. It was a big gray box that had a big cable which would plug, plug into the socket to emulate the chip that would normally be in that socket, right? And my task was to write that, you know, write the protocol for that. So that was C. So that's why I learned C. You know, it was things like, okay, that pin is high now. So we, we record a one. And then after a few clock cycles, that pin is zero now. So the pin is low, I should say. So we record a zero. So that sort of coding. Yeah. So that was I remember. Fun. Yeah. No, this was at the university, right? So we had something similar, yes. like our traffic light controls and stuff. Like yeah, this, yeah. Right? Very similar, I would imagine. So and there was a UI in Visual Basic 6. So this was actually Visual Basic, not KC Basic. So that's where I learned Visual Basic 6 and 
gladly I never used Visual Basic again. You know, <laughs> it, it was it was okay, but as soon as you wanted to do a little more advanced things, you know, data types and whatnot, you know, you, you got to the limit of Visual Basic very quickly. But you know, again, I'm jumping ahead. So that was Visual Basic, and then at uni, I got interested in 3D stuff because it's cool. You know, all the mathematics, the polygon rendering and all the 3D matrix transformation, all that stuff was mathematically very interesting because I did I did mathematics as a minor subject and computer science as the first subject. So I got into that because that ticked both my boxes, right? So computing and maths. So that was awesome. And I got into a project with the 3D department and that's why I learned C++. So based, you know, with, with C as a basis, it's okay. C++ is a strange language. But again, we can talk about this later. But once you kind of get your head around it, it's a pretty good language, actually. Yeah. So that was C++. Um, then after uni, I'm not even sure I should mention this, but, you know, honorable mention, Open Road. Which yeah, I have it a, on my list as well. Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, I've seen it on your list and that, that reminded me, oh, yeah, <laughs> Open Road. Because open we worked road. at the same company and it was kind of an Open Road shop kind of sort of for one customer it's so open- it's a little bit a pity right so to, to just mention open road a bit it was something which was developed by ingress or yeah really uh, decades ago right and uh, when it was developed as a as a i think fourth generation language right or yeah using, yeah yeah exactly using a kind of higher programming language mixing some or some ways in to easily access your database and or work with the data uh, out of the database right uh it actually looking at it are uh, at this point of time right decades ago let's say it was actually quite modern not when we worked with it it was already quite dusted when we worked on, on oh, it yes. right but but when it when it was first released by ingress it was kind of um, a fancy thing because java was not yet there and it had already kind of concepts that were later used by java right yeah. it was bytecode interpreted stuff like this right it, it was actually actually not a bad language. Um, it it just looked very old and dusted, and some concepts uh, were a little bit strange. You needed to name parameters explicitly when you use them and stuff like this, right? Which I didn't like, but uh, yeah, um, I I bet that Open Road in theory would have had some opportunity if it would have become more popular, right? But it never became. Uh, popular, no. which means that uh, it's a niche programming language. I think there are still some some projects using it out there, right? So it's still yeah, maintained but, by Ingress. Yeah. But that's legacy. Yeah, that's more maintaining than actual yeah. development. It's legacy. It's a it's a yeah. legacy programming language, right? So Open Road, we're probably talking sort of nineties, probably even early nineties, or maybe eighties, even maybe, maybe even eighties. Yeah, it could be even eighties. So right. it's very old. I think the ultimate. I agree with you. Open Road was quite good for the time but the ultimate downfall was that you were in this ecosystem right so you had your your ui library so there was only one way to do a ui screen it was pretty much tied into the ingress database so you couldn't say i think you in theory you could make it work against other databases but you know it wasn't really in the interest of ingress to make this easy for you so it wasn't wasn't easy Uh, exactly yeah, and, and the other thing was you, you just write code and that code randomly talks to the UI, randomly talks to the SQL. You had to be very disciplined to keep 
your separation of concerns going, right? So the language yeah. wasn't doing anything for you in that regard, right? So exactly. It's very easy to write all spaghetti and probably most projects ended up being spaghetti. I'm, I'm sure the project I was in did, you know, which, you know, I, I inherited the code. Okay, so go easy on me. But that's OpenRoad made that easy. So there you go. And after Open Road, you touched Java a bit, right? I touched oh. Java, yeah. So I was working in a um, sort of consultancy company who just said, okay, Mr. Customer, we have coders here. We do whatever you like in whatever language you like. So that's where I got, got some exposure at various things. And that was in Java. Uh, you know, Java just just wound me up. All this, you know, this this was early Java, so we're talking early two thousands now, right? So two thousand and three, maybe. Well, I actually like Java, but uh, Which is I, I still do. I still do. I, I had the feeling. I had a feeling. It's very similar to C right? So with C you have to fight with the language a little bit. There are these quirks if you like these strange things for instance deboxing and unboxing i appreciate java probably does this automatically now but back then it didn't i didn't like how arrays were initialized so so you know you know i, I was i was fine coding in java but i wasn't like yay java it's a great language so it never kind of sparked with me if you know what i mean so i, I respect that you like it you know Everyone likes different things, fair enough. Yeah, but I, I think it, it allowed me, I mean, it was an object-oriented programming language and I, yeah. I thought personally, so basically um, our, I wanted to talk later a bit about it, but let's uh, let's kind of uh, our, have it as a discussion as we said in, initially. So yeah, so coming from Pascal, uh, so basic Pascal, then object Pascal, right? Yeah. Java was actually a kind of good logical consequence, right? So I, I didn't come via the C, C++ path initially. I did then some oh. C, C++ later. But uh, for me, let's say this uh, this kind of uh, those higher language constructs are were, were easily to adopt because I knew C, I, uh, I knew object Pascal already, right? And and for me, basically Java kind of made totally sense then, right? Mm. Uh, also, also when I did uh, object-oriented analyzes and stuff like this, right, the inheritance, uh, how it worked, yeah, and, get that, uh, get and so that. on, right, totally made sense. So I adopted Java quite quickly, right? Yeah, that makes sense. For me, probably, yeah, it's probably as you say. Since I was coming from the C side, from the C direction, I was like, oh, why is this so? Uh? But then, you know, going back, then in two thousand and five, I learned C sharp. And that was which like, is very know, similar to Java. Which oh is my way, God! Very, yeah, very so, so, similar to Java. Right? <laughs> so it, it was similar to Java. I mean, many say C Sharp is a sort of a copy of Java, which which probably is true, but it's a copy, but only the good bits, right? Uh, so for me, learning <laughs> C Sharp was like the heavens open, and you know, there's a ray of sunshine coming down. And it's like, oh, <laughs> the angels singing, that sort of thing. Oh, man. So it's, man. It, it was like, okay, so this is like C++, but without all the bad bits of C++. And it's like Java, but without all the bad bits of Java. So I can just write my code. It's simple. Everything works as I would expect that it works, right? So I was, oh, I was in love. So C Sharp was my favorite language. And it was for 10 years. Right, so for yeah. 10, 10 years, I mean, uh, yeah, th there are problems. So there was the .NET framework, which in the early days, and I think 
until recently the full.net exactly. is like a 200 megabyte uh, you know, bundle of insanity. No, not so just, not just that, it. right? It's not just that it's huge. It's also that there were kind of different flavors of the .NET uh, framework, yes, right? So which meant that, uh, that yeah. you couldn't run something which you wrote there or here because there are some 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 kind of uh, system library functions or whatever you call it or exactly. framework. Uh, when was not there and, and it so actually it was, it was kind of something which drove me a bit crazy right so this yeah. uh, no, I, the I fact totally that you had that. full the full .NET framework and whatever was was, uh, yeah it was exactly the same for me and then there was you know when a new version of Windows comes out that comes out that came out back in the day with a new version of .NET and if you upgrade your project that means oh you're dropping support for that version of Windows now things like that and it was tied in you couldn't it, it wasn't easy to say oh you know actually i'm i'm targeting .net whatever it was 2.1 rather than 3 you know and then there were problems it wasn't easy to install it installing it took a long time installing .net required a reboot which is a problem when you want to install it on a server things like that you know yeah. it, was, it was not great the .NET framework, but the and, language. And I love, Java, I for instance, I mean, fine, the language is one part, but the platform is the other, right? Uh, it's a Java, Java kind of had a, had a runtime environment, which was kind of portable, right? You, you could yes. find it everywhere on Solaris, on Windows, on Linux, or whatever, yeah. right? In fairness, so, so, .NET has that now as well. But it took now, them yeah. 15 years to do it. <laughs> At least 15, right? <laughs> if not more than that, right? Yeah. Which is, uh, which, I mean, in the past, I, I remember times when when our, I worked on a .NET project and I kind of tried to to make it work on Linux and there was this Mono project, right? Yeah, so basically oh God, running yeah, it on I Mono and the Mono guys and uh, heads up, right? Uh, a, a great team and so on. Um, they they actually ported this stuff for Windows. They so did. instead of uh, for Linux, they they actually yeah. di didn't really take what Microsoft created. They kind of re-implemented it again, right? Uh, yes, as, as far as I know. Phases. Yeah, yeah. Exactly with with some side effects, right? Because mm -hmm. stuff uh, worked kind of slightly differently. I mean. In, in theory, the interfaces and whatever was implemented the same way, but uh, in, in practice, for instance, garbage collection worked differently behind the scenes and stuff like this, right? Uh, yes, because yeah. it's, it's an entirely new implementation of a garbage collector. So there might be sort of things you don't expect happen. Yeah, that was the guys. Yeah, the, I think they're, they're Samarin now, and some of them, exactly. Microsoft gave a job. Uh, yeah sun uh, i'm not sure who was it no not sun um novel or the the Sousa guys in between i'm not sure right i uh, think i think at the end microsoft bought it all i think there was a company called samarin which the mono guy yeah, yeah. miguel de icaza i think is his name which yeah, the mono yeah, guy yeah. founded and microsoft bought the whole thing bought the company gave the guy a job and all the rest of it which I, think... I remember him actually. I think I had some conversations with him initially when when we were working on this graph database in .NET and wanted to port it to Linux and whatever, right? Really? <laughs> yeah, you spoke think... to Miguel. Wow. Yeah, I think I think so. Or, I'm a little or... starstruck. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I think he wasn't that famous uh, back then, well, right? Yeah, uh, well, he is now. Years ago. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. 
anyway, so anyway um, yeah. if, if I'm not mistaken, so we get, if you listen to this podcast, which is probably yeah. not the case, right? <laughs> well, that's bloody like um, <laughs> So it uh, could be that I'm mixing up your name, but I think actually when you are worked at, at the Mono project and I worked on the storage engine for a .NET implemented graph database that we had some contact, right? So I think, I think we, we had should, some calls yeah. and stuff like this. We should tag Miguel on Twitter when we post this episode and <laughs> see if he remembers. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> so yeah, so that was .NET, still doing .NET. And in 2011, you know, at 2011, I, by 2011, I hadn't done any web stuff. And I thought, hmm, I'm, I'm probably missing the bus here. You know, every, everybody's doing web. So in 2011, I got into the web stuff. So initially with web forms, so everyone who has worked with web forms is probably groaning now, oh, web forms. You know, that was the, the attempt of Microsoft to write web applications without doing webby things to sort of give the coder an interface that looks like you are coding a desktop application and just magically make it webby which means that all the state of the page, right? So what, what state is in, is, is that checkbox checked and all of that stuff is saved in sort of a massive variable client side. That variable could be, you know, two megabytes big. And whenever something changed on the page, the entire page was posted back to the server right? And then the server would render the next page and push it down to the client. So each interaction was maybe a four megabyte, which, you know, would take up four megabyte of data in, in an extreme case. So that was what web forms was. So not a great technology. It's the same thing. It, it is, you know, supported for legacy reasons, but it's no longer developed. There's a new thing called Blazor. Maybe we get to that later. Anyway, so I got into webby stuff. And in, you know, I, I was learning things like, you know, bootstrap, sort of CSS frameworks, knockout. I found, I found things like knockout very exciting. So data binding in the web, when something changes on the page, automatically some sort of JavaScript callbacks are triggered. So I found mm -hmm. it very, very cool. And then the next, the next thing, Angular, right, which took that whole to the next level, where that update of data would trigger the UI again. So which is strictly seen not a language it's more framework, it's a framework right? same, yeah, same for bootstrap or for absolutely yeah. absolutely so so that's where i got i'm saying this because that's where i first got into contact with javascript so i thought yeah you know javascript it's it's easy to get it wrong because it's it's flexible but it's too flexible right so you can do too much but that was kind of fixed in so five years ago i learned typescript and that was another another angel moment, you know, where the sky opens. So TypeScript for me fixes all the bad things about JavaScript. I right. need to try it out. Maybe I should put it on my list. I actually yeah. never, never looked into it. I, I did a, a bunch of, I would not say a lot, but a bunch of JavaScript, uh, Node.js uh, JavaScript uh, stuff. So something like Node.js in the backend and then yeah. uh, something like uh, AngularJS uh, in the front end, right? And uh, yeah, uh, Angular is nice, right? Nothing to complain about Angular, um, let's say, but uh, regarding Node.js, the, the problem I had always, right, is I, I thought, hey, 
uh, let's just start start with a little express app or whatever, right? And mm. uh, uh, it's easy. How how complicated can it be and whatever, right? And I always ended up with code which totally looked totally ridiculous, right? <laughs> Initially, <laughs> no, no, really. I mean, I tried hard to 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 kind of structure it cleanly and uh, have different modules and whatever, right? But at the end, JavaScript is a is a is a is a language which tends to look kind or at least when I work with it tended to look uh, kind of overloaded right mm. I think what what helped in in the meantime so this is something and again I guess this changed again uh, uh, it was a while ago when I last touched JavaScript but uh, what I really hated was callbacks right <laughs> callbacks that we yeah. are nesting other callbacks and callbacks again and this was looking yes. so ridiculous right and then they came up with promises which actually was really nice I really like promises because it uh, kind of helped you to to streamline your code better uh, regarding this asynchronous operation execution, right? But uh, initially, when you all only had callbacks, or when I was just aware of call, callbacks, maybe, uh, right? My my code looked really bad. I have to say, right? Not, not that, yeah. I, that I didn't try to to have it looking nice. It was just that uh, it was bloated uh, immediately, right? It started as a, a simple thing and. Uh, then at the end, you you had uh, thousands of lines of code just uh, or looking at it and thinking, okay, why the hell is this looking so complicated? It's something very simple, right? Yeah, no, exactly. That was exactly it. I had the same the same journey. So these callbacks were just, they, yeah, the code was ridiculous. And then there was the promise thing. And then there's, you know, the first thing of TypeScript. TypeScript obviously introduced that async keyword, right? So that mm -hmm. async keyword is a keyword in JavaScript now, but back in the day, not all browsers supported it. So what TypeScript did, it allowed you to write, you know, your, your promises with the async. You could just say, uh, my variable is await, and then the promise at the end. So you could just, you know, have these await blocks in there. And it would, under the hood, create that callback code, that JavaScript code, for the browsers who don't support that async keyword. So that was one big win for me. But these days, to be fair, you should be, shouldn't really be using promises anymore, right? So it's, it's all observables now for various reasons. So if you can use Rx, the RxJS packages with, with observables, cool. then you should, because yeah. there are many, many advantages of using those. Yeah. So the reactive extensions, basically, the same yes. stuff which is is existing for Java, so Rx Java yeah, is yeah. actually something I really liked. Or, so being able to to streamline it in a way that you can yes. mix in some some functional programming stuff or style a bit, uh, right? Uh, I, I really like this. I, I mean, I will talk a bit about functional programming <laughs> later, but uh, um, yeah. I really like the, the reactive extensions. And this is something which is widely used now in JavaScript. Is this what you're saying? It, it is widely used. Um, probably Angular introduced this because Angular comes with RxJS now built in. So the Angular HTTP package, which you would use to, to interact with the server via HTTP, right? So that is now written on top of RxJS. So if you use Angular, you have RxJS, and it would be silly to, to not use it because you have it already. I mean, you can cool. always say in your HTTP calls at the end, dot to promise, if you prefer it as a promise, but why would you, right? You can't, you can't cancel a promise. You can cancel an observable. 
right? Little things like that. So why why would you? So if you use Angular, you are already using RxJS. Now that's right? cool. That's, that's like that's the, the reactive programming stuff is really something yeah. I, I, I enjoyed. And since uh, Angular is forcing you to use TypeScript, you already have all of that support for the older browsers built in as well. Yeah, but anyway, so, so since I like TypeScript so much, um, a, a year ago, I learned Node.js because then I can use TypeScript on the server. Mm. And that was pretty, yeah, that was pretty good. So Node.js, I think, is not as good as .NET Core, right? But it is flexible and I can use TypeScript. So for me, if I had the choice in a Greenfield project, it would probably be Node.js on the back end and Angular on the front end. And so yeah. that's, why, that's why I'm yeah. today. This is because you hate Python, right? Uh, because uh, there, uh, yes, uh, a glowing uh, hatred uh, for Python, <laughs> which is totally irrational, but it is there. Uh, anyway. It is real. Hate is okay, my, my journey looked a little bit, um, are actually not too different, right? So as mentioned, I started on the C64, uh, did some, some basic stuff, uh, only some simple, stu stupid stuff like uh, uh, Q&A games or whatever, right? Um, then a bit of Sampley and Pascal, um, when I went to this higher school, high school for computer science, uh, in German, you would call it Berufliches Gymnasium, right? I'm not sure if there's an English equivalent of this. Um, then, <laughs> I think it's called BTEC uh, or something. Anyway, I'm not sure, right? Um, so the uh, then PHP um, for one project. Um, so there was a project where I was asked to to develop an, a, a job portal, right, and integrated uh, with Typo three and uh, I think a Sage CRM or something like that, right? And um, then Object Pascal are for a little project where that are a phonetic analyzers on Excel sheets or so mm -hmm. yeah something um, yeah which I just uh, tried to do right or so getting some practical experience and um, there was a company they they kind of had a bunch of customers and they had uh, some Excel sheets and they had uh, a lot of uh, double entries and they wanted to understand um, yeah and someone basically human being entered those entries and so names were not spelled exactly the same way always <laughs> right uh, which basically caused a problem for them and so they asked me to uh, to kind of fix this and uh, so I used the graph algorithm I don't know remember the name anymore but uh, it had something to do with the distance measurement and you could use a graph in order to calculate the, the distance of worlds and uh, there's something which I basically um, used to to find the distance out I think um, yeah today we have nice algorithm my slide um, uh, yeah anyway um, so then uh, what else yeah there are some specific languages which we kind of touched um, when we uh, talked about specific uh, paradigms uh, something like Haskell Lisp Prolog mm. so functional programming and logical programming um, then actually I touched C sharp and, and I blame you for that right <laughs> <laughs> okay I take that uh, 
<laughs> I think when we when we worked at Ingress, um, Ingress together, um, I, I started to work there in the QA department, right? And uh, you already worked in the engineering department at this point of time. And mm. um, I, I was a little bit bored just doing QA. Uh, sorry to all my Q&A fellows out there, right? Uh, it's, I have to say Q&A is a really high, highly uh, valued job from my point of view, right? So I, I really appreciate all the hard work Q&A people are doing. And um, I also kind of uh, had the opportunity to learn a lot about uh, the product when I did Q&A, right? So to, from my point of view, every engineer, software engineer should, uh, should start doing at least a few weeks q a right yeah. uh, so so quali qu quality quality assurance right qa um which means uh, you learn a lot about a product you learn a lot about uh, the processes and so on right but anyway uh, so yeah um i was a bit bored there and uh, <laughs> um i think um yeah I, I then started a .net project right c c sharp because you kind of uh said, hey, why not using C-sharp for that? Um, which uh, was around managing virtual virtual machines, right? Oh, I yeah, think I the, the QA department had a lot of uh, virtual machines hanging around, right? And uh, there was not uh, any kind of provisioning framework or whatever, right? It was just a, a, a simple API for, um, I think, VMware at this point, right? So something like uh, basic VMware stuff. And uh, so what we did is, or what I did is I, I created a little tool which which kind of interacted uh, with this API in order to orchestrate the, the uh, uh, test environments a bit. Right, uh, yeah. Um, what else after that? Um, yeah, C, C++, but only for test case development, right? Uh, so again, I, I didn't start with C or C++, but I had to do it anyway uh, in order to uh, develop meaningful test case in QA. Um, then, um, yeah, open road, same story, right? Yay. Uh, yeah, more for testing purposes or demo or test applications at this point, right? Then Java, actually, I attached Java uh, more when I started to work more in, in, in partner certifications. So when I left the QA department, I, I kind of uh, joined uh, an emerging technologies department uh, at Ingress, and there we, we kind of built appliances at this point of time. And um, yeah, uh, for the appliance, uh, we need to kind of certify with technical partners uh, or if their product is working with us. And some of the solutions were based on Java and uh, uh, in order to make it work, we had to develop Java code, right? Um, so specific extensions or whatever, right? Or yeah, driver, adapt drivers or abstractions between the driver and, uh, uh, and the actual enterprise solution, right? Um, yeah. Um, and then later, I actually continued to do Java uh, in, in between.NET, right? So uh, when I left Ingress, I joined this graph database startup, and there um, I did for about a year a uh, storage engine in.NET, right? So C sharp. So, so for, for a C year, sharp. you used C sharp only. That's quite, yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah, quite yeah, a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. For so, a year, I used C sharp only. But it was easy at this point of time because, uh, so I found it actually easy because I, I came from Java. My biggest problem was initially more the code style and stuff like this, right? Uh, not uh, not using it and maybe uh, understanding the, the, the framework, let's say. But 
Um, as soon as I understood this and had a good overview about, around it and got adapted regarding the, uh, the code style.net or C sharp was actually quite nice. So I worked uh, it's very for consistent, a year. isn't it? The coding yeah, styles yeah. for C sharp. Which and I didn't like was. And all that. Yeah, what I didn't like was that it was very tightly integrated with the micro, into the yes. Microsoft tool chain, right? This was that something which really killed me, right? So this, uh, yeah, so it was basically only possible to develop <laughs> uh, using, or maybe you could also have done it in a different way by not uh, having an optimal workflow, let's say, but uh, in order to do it in an effective way, you had to use Microsoft Visual Studio, right? And um, everything yes. was kind of, uh, yeah, designed to be like that. The project files looked kind of very horrible, tons of XML in them, right? And uh, no one would write them from scratch. You would kind of just yeah. click them together using Microsoft Visual Studio, right? Uh, so, absolutely yeah. fair. Yeah, all of that is very, very true and very valid. But .NET Core kind of fixed all of that now. So, yeah, I need know, to take if, a look. If, yeah. I need to take a look. Yeah. Actually, this was something which was highly demanded, right? Um, in, in, I mentioned already that we kind of worked with the Mono guys in order to make uh, our storage engine working uh, on work on on Linux, and uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah. one problem was garbage collection at this point of time. I remember that they used something like the Booms uh, garbage collector. Could this be? which was also something which is available in C++, but it was not as good as the Microsoft one. And then, yeah, to be honest, yeah, it's anyway not the best idea to write a storage engine using C Sharp, right? We should have mixed in more uh, yeah, C code, yeah, let's say. Right? I suppose, yeah, you want that sort of thing, that performance critical sort of thing, you want it to be as low level as possible. Uh, so exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. An interpreted language on IL language is probably not... Yeah, exactly. Oh, well. So the, this was a this was a learning, my personal learning, let's say, right? Still, I was still younger, and uh, the next iteration would have been that uh, uh, we uh, implement some of the functionality natively again, right? And then just wrap it with the stuff which we already have, um, well. like the free memory management uh, in your database system or whatever, right? But uh, yeah. Uh, this is not what we did initially, and uh, uh, the iteration I did was already kind of a, a progress com comparison to the first version of the storage engine. So, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, and the startup then finally died anyway, right? So after one year, so I would probably yeah. have worked longer for them, but um, it's they they just run out of money uh, after one year, right? I've uh, been there, man. Yeah. yeah, happens, uh, especially happens. in Germany, right, where you uh, don't have uh, tons of investors hanging around like in the Silicon Valley, right? Anyway, um, yeah, but it was a fun project, right? It was an index-free adjacency storage engine, right? I hope I, I hope that I said this word right. It's one of the English words which kind of uh, <laughs> makes me trouble <laughs> because it sounds similar to the German word adjacent, right? But uh, adjacent. Yeah. No, I think adjacency uh, is right. Is, uh, yeah. Has a I, slightly I say different. As a non-native English speaker, so, yeah. yeah, sounds right. Uh, it sounds okay. Right. 
Yeah. Then JavaScript, Node.js, PhoneGap uh, uh, for some demo applications, right? As part of pre-sales engagements or when customers wanted to use it and uh, wanted to know how to best integrate uh, the database system. Then uh, Python for several small CLI tools or web tools, so Flask. Uh, Yep. As, a, as a framework and i have to say i i don't share your hate relationship with python so i'm not having this <laughs> right because uh, uh i mean python has, has some weird things true but every language has to a specific degree and in indeed python enforces a lot of stuff like or uh, yeah uh, how to structure your code and whatever right so or uh, but uh yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, it's just I can't get over the fact that formatting has semantic meaning. I just, it, it yeah. just, it, it just, you know, I can't, I, I just can't, you know, the, <laughs> the indentation is part of the syntax. That's the same reason why I don't particularly like it, it's uh, strictly, YAML, that is the same thing. Yeah, it's strictly Potter. I mean, as a C it's guy, a, it's I a just like my curly it, braces, you know. There it's you a go. matter of interpretation, actually, right? Uh, you could say it's part of the syntax, but actually it's not really, right? It's a uh, I would say it's a it's a meta level or whatever, right? Uh, so it's it's clear the case that Python is reporting you a syntax error then, but it's actually not really part of the syntax per se, right? So it's uh, it's more one level higher, right? It just uh, enforces that you are that you are using uh, a clean code structure, right? Or formatting, yeah, okay. right? But, uh, okay, so, so the formatting is part of the scope. Then we could we yeah. could probably agree on that. Yeah, let's call uh, yeah, it like I, this. Right. I, I just like that I'm I'm more free with the formatting. I mean, in in every sort of C-derived programming language, I could write the whole program in a single line. Not that I would ever do that, but just knowing that I could is nice. It's not you know. right. Actually, it's <laughs> not right. Uh, and <laughs> anyway, right? Yeah. So okay, then, yeah. Uh, Py Python is actually Python is actually my today's to-go language if it comes uh. to to something like <laughs> now. Not not because of the uh, the um, our enforcements uh, which it has and something something like that. Right? Those are kind of questionable. Fine, but uh, actually, Python is. Um, a little bit for me, a little bit sounding like pseudocode, right? So if you look at the Python mm. uh, program, it's it's kind of very self-explaining code, right? And um, nowadays I'm doing a lot of training material, so when I have to to give some code samples, I'm usually picking Python, right? Instead of pseudocode, let's say, right? Uh, because it's okay. easy for people to just run a Python interpreter. It's portable; you can run it everywhere. They actually did the dependency management quite better than in Node, right? <laughs> in Node, yeah, uh, the, the, depend the Node dependency, dependency is management is a kind of yeah. nightmare, right? It's uh, an absolute in, nightmare. I give you that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In in Python, this is uh, from my point of view much better, which means everyone who uh, who is basically uh, able to bring up an interpreter um, is is able to to get started trying this code sample out, right? But meaning. Uh, and uh, it's such easy regarding the syntax um, in general, I would say, or simple than uh, even people that don't are that aren't Python developers, right, can can mm. get it, right, can read it, understand it, right, or maybe try it. That's out, what it even. is. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. People coming new to programming find Python easy because they're not biased. For me, it's since I have such a long history, everything that is C, C like is something that I pick yeah. up more intuitively because that I look at it and it makes sense to me. So maybe exactly. it's just me being old that I don't like Python. 
Maybe that's all it is. Uh, you're, you're old. I'm a, you. a bit younger than you, <laughs> and that's the reason why I'm still getting along with Bayern. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit of Go, or Golang, or Mar for uh, a little, a very little project, and I actually never completed it or, or for extending. I think it was a querying indexing service, uh, and it was about. Or placing indexes uh, the right way across uh, some cluster nodes or something like that. Oh, okay. uh, it was more That's professional, a ser- and it was more professional services engagement. Uh, but um, right. I actually never completed it, right because R and D then picked it up and uh, did it much better than I would have done it uh, uh, when I worked for this database vendor. <laughs> right. um, oh, it's a shame. Java, Java for implementing a graph library on top of a NoSQL database system right and then uh yeah or a bit of scala because or for a period of time it was hard to not uh, use scala right or yes if you if you did spark or whatever ago. right yeah yeah for distributed compute computing and whatever right uh, scala was the language uh, of choice for a while uh, i think now our uh, people are tending to use more Maybe I'm wrong, right? But my impression is that uh, uh, this this kind of stuff uh, uh, is sometimes summarized as data science, and they either go with Scala, Spark, stuff like this, or Python is uh, is one of the languages which is used yes. There. I think most data scientists I've worked with were Python guys, Python first and foremost. Okay, and uh, yeah. That's that's it basically. Um, one thing I realized over the time uh, is that uh, learning new programming languages are, uh, is something which which I enjoy actually, right? Um, same as you, I guess. And oh, yeah. um, there was a kind of question um, on my side for Bayern how to do this best, right? And um, actually, I mean, the question was answered automatically to myself in a way. Because uh, the way how I learned initially, or, or let's say, and the way how it worked is that uh, when we went to university, after having a bunch of experiences with, or uh, let's say, basic languages, um, we, yeah, it didn't get our uh, knowledge around new programming languages. Maybe you did. Or I think you 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 got uh, C++ as an additional one. But um, one of mm. the concepts of this university, as far as I remember, and we went to the bo- both to the same, right? It was that they they don't teach you programming languages. They only teach you concepts, right, and paradigms. Yes. And uh, yes. so the way how it works is that um, we learned object-oriented programming or or uh, functional programming, <laughs> logical programming, whatever, right? So different paradigms, and then uh, when we were tested, uh, we could pick the language of our choice, right? Uh, and do whatever you want, right? And uh, they didn't enforce any any programming languages. Yes, uh, that's exactly for, right. Yeah, yeah. For, they for the test. Taught right? us, yeah, the abstract stuff, as you say, the, the, the paradigm and things like, you know, the complexity of algorithms, you know, exactly. theoretical computer science. That yeah. was fun. And initially, I have to say, when I when I was studying, I was a bit disappointed because I hoped to to get a bit more practical experience, something which I could use immediately, blah blah, right? But uh, in the midterm slash long term, right, I actually have to say that I appreciate this approach now, right, because it was much easier for me to to learn new stuff later then, right? So instead of uh, instead of kind of yeah or 
needing to 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 learn just some pattern matching or uh, yeah mimic or stuff by uh, yeah working with Stack Overflow in order to learn stuff. Not that I don't like Stack Overflow, just saying, right? So uh, I, I think it was much more valuable for me to kind of learn all the basic concepts in the first place, right? And then after that, apply them to different programming languages by, for instance, looking at the syntax, looking at the type system and stuff like this, right? Um, and then kind of just apply the concepts to this programming language. And then uh, maybe one example project. And then I, I kind of would say that um, I, I got it at least to a degree that I can code stuff like with it right oh. yeah no i had a very similar concern and, and i spoke with one of the professors back in the day and i never forget what he said he said well you're not learning and you're not gaining any practical experience that's not why you're here you are here to learn how to learn right sort of what what to look for and what what the structures is and, and where do you start yeah that sort of thing and, and yeah I, I never forget that Makes sense, yeah, and it was really helpful at the end, right? Well, from my point of view. Yeah, I think so. So, how so? How would you learn a language? I mean, as said, right? Um, so I would kind of look at the paradigm, uh, try paradigm, to match it yeah. to what I what I are know already about it. So for instance, object-oriented programming, right? Then uh, look at the type system, data types, uh, and then how the control structures are looking like. And then last but not least, that, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, the same way as you would do, right? Um, so looking yeah. at the, what I call the framework, let's say, right? And Exactly, uh, the framework or the library. Yeah, that's exactly, it's a paradigm, data types, syntax, and library. I think that's yeah. the, probably the right order. Exactly, exactly. I think so, right? So, but do you, yeah. you if you if you kind of, uh, it's a little bit like with Latin, and so my my kids, I I try to get my kid kids to learn Latin, right? Because I had Latin in school when I was younger, and uh, even if I'm not not able to speak it or whatever, uh, use it. Uh, it's anyway a dead language, but uh, even if I'm not able to to use it really right now, I had the feeling that uh, learning this language conceptually opened up our the uh, or, or open the door to learn other languages more easily right something yeah. like french or spanish or italian or whatever right and um, i think if you if you basically learn the concept of concepts of object-oriented programming then uh, it's much easier for you to to learn something in the next step like java right or uh, maybe also kotlin or go to a specific degree, right? Everything which has uh, object-oriented aspects, right? And I, I guess it's, it's also true with functional programming languages, right? So if you basically know the concepts of functional programming, then it's easier, or the paradigm, it's easier for you to, to get along with new functional programming languages, right? Yeah, I suppose if you know one, you kind of know them all. And that's why probably why, since I'm coming from C, sort of C-related languages, make a lot of sense to me the same as if you you know if, if you have some basic knowledge of latin it's probably easier to learn french as you said yeah, so, yeah uh, that's a good exactly. analogy 
something like this, right? Linguist, uh, coming back to the... Ah, ah, linguist. <laughs> coming back to the <laughs> discussion. Okay, um, yeah, looking at the at the ranking of, uh, of those languages, right? Um, right now I looked it up by looking at something which was called pypl.github.io, right? Um, and uh, it's regarding this index it's python java javascript c sharp and then c c++ right so so when you say ranking this is the most sort of where the most people search for tutorials to learn it right yeah i think so uh, actually i need to uh, I, don't, I don't know what the index was about right yeah yeah no, uh, I, I think I it's the it uh, it's the prepare it uh, popularity of programming languages yeah. uh this is for what the py uh yeah pl or whatever is so it's the right? number of number of people searching for tutorials on google right yeah something like this right yeah so that makes sense so python thinking of thinking of it that way it makes total sense because python is what most what the next generation of coders probably the first language for them they learn python isn't it I suppose it's easy to learn. As I said, if you have no bias, like we old guys do, then it's an easy language that makes immediate sense. Yeah, it's so. it actually a nice language, to be honest, right? I, I, I know you don't like it, but it's actually not too bad. You should give it a second chance. Yeah, um, no, I totally appreciate it. It's, it's because, you know, I'm, I'm set in my ways, sadly. Yeah. And maybe but, if I have a good day, I give it another chance, as you said. Actually, I think um, the index, maybe not the order, but I think the index makes kind of sense. So for my experience, and it's just based on experience, there's no index uh, which proves it, right? I would say the most of the enterprise software, and I'm not talking about uh, websites or whatever, mm. toy projects or whatever, right? So I mean, enterprise software, I, I would say C, C++, Java, and C Sharp are the, the top languages in enterprises, probably. right? Yeah, yeah. probably. And uh, something like Python or maybe is getting some traction there in, from another angle, right? Uh, because something like uh, machine learning, data science, stuff like this is becoming uh, more and more important, right? Also in enterprises, uh, let's say. So data science, scientists are, are using Python, for instance, or R. They are, right? yeah. As I said, all of, all of them I know. They use Python, and some guys, you know, DevOps guys like Python as well. Uh, exactly. Quick script. So exactly. it's probably where where that popularity is coming from. Yeah, automation engineers are using Python a lot, right? Because of uh, yes. yeah integrations uh, with Ansible and so on, right? I would say. Yeah. For instance, Ansible or Terraform or whatever, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, I think the, same with yeah. Go. Go, by the way, right? Go uh, something which is very well established as far as I remember in the Kubernetes uh, ecosystem. So meaning yes. uh, I think all of that stuff's written in Go, right? Yeah, exactly. And so if you have some additional functionality which you would like to add or whatever, right? Uh, then no, maybe Go is a language of your choice or something like an operator or whatever, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. And apparently Go is very fast. So, you know, maybe it's worth looking at it at some point. By the way, as you've seen, I've, I've dug out another list. So there is this GitHub list. They do a similar thing. And what I found interesting is the fastest growing languages. Right. Ooh. So, yes. So number one is Dart. 
What is Dart? I never heard about what Dart. Is to be Dart? Honest, eh? I think Dart, and I hope I'm not confusing that with Rust. Yeah, I am confusing it with Rust. So okay. I heard about so, Rust. Rust. Rust is something which is really really popular right now, right? Yes. So, her, so her what I understand times, is yeah. Rust is just a language that compiles to anything, and from what I can see on the website, first and foremost, WebAssembly, and WebAssembly is an amazing technology. I mean, WebAssembly has the chance to be sort of the next sort of great unifying theory, right? Because WebAssembly uh, runs within a JavaScript VM, which every browser has, and which, you know, if you have Node.js, you also have a VM where WebAssembly can run in. Because WebAssembly is kind of sort of a subset of JavaScript, you know, what, why would you have that, right? So the thing is, WebAssembly is a reduced instruction set from JavaScript, which allows the engine to optimize for that in, a reduced instruction set and make it very, very fast. So some people say, even I've thought in another podcast, that it, it, it reaches near-native performance. I don't think this is really possible since it's still in a JavaScript VM. It's still in some sort of VM, right? It has to be in a sandbox for security reasons, right? But once this is widely supported, you could easily imagine that all the new software is running on top of WebAssembly, right? Because it so is, is, so it WebAssembly, is, is WebAssembly or something like bytecode then? It, it is kind of bytecode. It's very similar to, you know, um, like a JAR file, right? So, so yeah, Java, Java would be yeah. compiled okay, into yeah. some sort of byte language. And that is what WebAssembly is, okay. right? Yeah. So at the moment, you can compile your, your Angular or whatever, or any program, right, down to WebAssembly, and then it can run in the browser. Because even if the browser doesn't support WebAssembly yet, there are sort of compatibility layers, right? So you can, you can download a, a JavaScript a package on your page that does a little shim, that does a little emulation layer for WebAssembly. Okay, right. Makes so sense. this has huge potential, right? So, so there is there are project. There's a project on Microsoft which is called Blazor, and that uses WebAssembly. So the idea is you can write C sharp, and that gets translated into WebAssembly and runs in the browser. Right, so this way you can write full client-side application, and you don't need things like Angular anymore. Right, so imagine that you write just C sharp, just yeah. C sharp. I, you, I, never, not... you never see JavaScript, <laughs> and it runs in the browser. But I mean, Angular is not just uh, not just a language, right? It's a framework, and yeah, uh, yeah, as long yeah. as you don't have a similar framework for .NET or yes. so. So that's what I'm saying. So Blazor isn't yeah. C sharp. Blazor is a framework. Right. And I'm assuming uh, Rust is kind of sort of a similar thing. And I may be totally wrong, but that was just a quick impression from looking at it. So, yeah. I mean, I, I got only one presentation about it by Dr. Christoph Zimmermann, actually. Right. Um, so yeah, I have to mention I have to mention the in Linux, uh, Linux in laws. Right. Is the name oh, of do their... we have to. If their podcast, <laughs> I'm not sure they mentioned us. They mentioned us. I'm not sure if they mentioned us in a positive way because it yeah, was kind I of. A, it it was enjoyable, yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, it was Christoph's typical sense of humor. Let's say. Right? <laughs> so Christoph, yeah, I, if you I listen to it. that, I like slightly I, weird humor. 
Uh, hi, Christoph. Right. Uh, yeah, Hello. and he gave me a, he gave me a little introduction about Rust, and uh, yeah, this was highly appreciated. Um, and it's on my to-do list to take a closer look. Uh, what I understood is uh, that it's something which is very interesting for persons that are coming from C++, for instance, right? Uh, because uh, it picks up some stuff uh, from there yes. uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, does some other stuff better and so on, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, no, fair enough. Then there's HCL. So this is something that I had to look up. Even though I use Terraform, I forgot that there is the HashiCorp configuration language. You know, yeah, this uh, is what HCL who, is. Who the hell is using that? I mean, fine, people that you, you, DevOps guys and people that want to use Terraform. But it, it is basically Terraform. It is the Terraform language. But Terraform is gaining more and more traction. There are plugins for Terraform from all the cloud providers. Right, and this way you can be totally cloud agnostic with your deployments. Yeah, yeah, no so, Terraform, but I mean, is this language something which is a which is a full blown programming language or? Well, that is a good question. Is it Turing complete? That's the question. Is it Turing complete or is it just? Well, they say quite humbly it is a configuration language, so maybe maybe it isn't Turing complete. I don't know if it has loops. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just assuming at this point it's a it's a souped up YAML file. <laughs> Sounds like yeah. it, right? Yeah. Uh, so then there's of course Kotlin. You know, you're quite a fan, I understand. Yes, Kotlin is actually one of my my current favorite languages, right? So I really like Kotlin. I mean, coming from Java makes total sense, right? Because it's a it's a kind of um, uh, let's say it this way, right? Uh, I did a Java and then uh, I did a bit of uh, JavaScript uh, in between. And Kotlin kind of looks like a creature which is a mixture of both of it, uh, whereby our, uh, the, the key properties are still Java-ish, let's say, right? And ah. uh, uh, But um, it, it is quite, yeah, shorter, the syntax is neater and whatever, right? But uh, uh, behind the scenes, it's still a JVM, which is basically uh, most of the times running it. Uh, you can also use native or compile it to native code, let's say, or native uh, uh, binaries. Uh, but uh, uh, let's say the 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 idea is that uh, most of the times you would run it in a JVM, I would say, right? Uh, if I'm wrong, let me know, right? Um, and it's uh, it's the language of choice of Google when it comes to our Android, right? So basically, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh. So so Android development in the past, when I did Android development, I, I still did it in, by by using Java, basically, right? And uh, today, it seems that Kotlin is uh, uh, the first choice uh, for Android development. Right. This is my understanding. Uh, yeah, but uh, I actually uh, it was eye catching. Uh, I guess the marketing of um, um, yeah, <laughs> who actually developed it? Let me see. I have a note somewhere here. Uh, yeah, the, the the creators of JetBrains uh, or by no sorry, JetBrains uh, is the creator of an IDE which is called IntelliJ. Right. We are not doing advertisement right. or whatever, but it's it's uh, kind of other well IDEs are available. 
Yep. Yeah, we also mentioned uh, Visual Studio Code or whatever, right? Uh, but uh, there, there are several IDEs developed by, by JetBrains, uh, and uh, JetBrains came up with this language, uh, let's say, right? Uh, um, and uh, yeah, nowadays it's really Google's preferred language for developing Android apps. And um, so I think guess JetBrains marketing for quite well uh, because I'm a customer of them, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, having having some subscriptions uh, of their products. And um, I think at some point I, I kind of just uh, saw Kotlin as a as a programming language and digged a bit deeper and found it really nice regarding the syntax and stuff like this, right? And um, so decided to give it a try and immediately fall into love with it right um yeah and started a little example project so after reading a bit about uh, the language itself and so on right um, as we discussed before i kind of uh, explored or uh, explored a, bit, a little bit uh, how, how it could work by implementing um yeah an event loop uh, don't ask why. It was more an academic exercise. I think someone asked me, hey, how exactly does the Redis event loop work? And so I thought, hey, <laughs> challenge accepted. <laughs> let's uh, let's research this a bit, uh, how exactly it works. And uh, let's not just research it a bit. Let's uh, kind of... Uh, have a little Something. project where yeah. I implement uh, it not exactly the same way, but uh, let's say the relevant parts, right? Like postponing events and so on. And by the way, it's more or less the same way as the Node.js event loop is working, right? Um, so you can uh, have okay. events that are kind of timed, and you can have events that are not timed and so on, right? Uh, any, anyway, uh, it's not about event oh, loops see, today, right. but I implemented an event loop um, uh, with an event buffer and an event queue are, are in uh, in Kotlin, right? Just uh, for academical purposes, let's say. And um, what I kind of found out, what's cool about this is, first of all, you can implement uh, code for the JVM, which is by default portable, let's say. But you can also implement uh, or build it, let's say, or you can build it in a way that it's then uh, natively running, right? So how does that work? Does it kind of include the JVM or does it sort of fully compile it? No, it, it compiles it. I, I would say it compiles it then natively, but uh, I never did it. So yeah, maybe um, I answer this question <laughs> next time, but I would say it's uh, it doesn't include the JVM. It's, it's basically oh, compiling the code natively, okay. right? Then, um, yeah, what I liked is the fact that it, you can leverage the these Java system methods, right? We talked about the framework. And actually, I personally, uh, the paradigm is usually not a big deal. Syntax is not a big deal for me, right? But what I personally uh, is always a challenge when learning a new programming language is to, to get uh, to know the framework, right? Because there's yes. uh, a bunch of there's a bunch of functionality in it which you might or uh, based on your previous experience just re-implement then right someone gives you a task and you start programming and you implement the functionality which is for sure within the framework somewhere right and uh, <laughs> if if you didn't dig deep deep enough in order to find it out right you waste the time and later then you find out oh man right I could have just used this or. Uh, Hey, a dog, man. Do you have a dog? No, you have a cat, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you could, uh, you could have, uh, you could have used, uh, let's say, uh, yeah, uh, 
the system method or uh, framework method, right? And this is something which is always puzzling me. And uh, so, yeah, uh, one good part about Kotlin is that uh, it looks like Java in this sense, or it can use the Java system methods, right? And they are look they actually look simpler. So they are having a neat short uh, syntax. So instead of saying something like uh, static void, uh, find a static void, blah, blah, right? Um, you, you can just basically define a function, right? And uh, uh, by using a fun <laughs> keyword and whatever, right? Um, so for instance, for the main uh, method, right? Uh, it's much easier, but you can basically say, yeah, fun main and then brackets and then you pass your argument yeah. uh, array, which is uh, looking a bit more like JavaScript. Uh, but to be uh, fair, these type definitions, array and string, you know, that looks very TypeScripty as well. Yeah, you the know, array and string is, is since ever in in uh, not Java. exactly. I mean, Java already had this uh, string type, let's say, right? But uh, array uh, was kind of not a type; it was built in. Here, in this case, they they have a type. What you did usually in Java is you had an array list or whatever, right? And then. Uh, had a list type, uh, and then sometimes you did conversions and so on, right? Depending on how yeah. uh, how flexible you need to be, right? Uh, indeed. I, I think, yeah, going back to your Latin analogy, I think that whole syntax goes back to the C++ generic syntax, doesn't it? Maybe. I think that's where that stuff with, the stuff with the, with the angly brackets, you know, these pointy brackets, I think that's where that syntax originally comes from. Could be, yeah, but uh, maybe it's a it has some has multiple influences, right? Would be good to to understand by talking to the JetBrains guys, uh, or maybe if someone listening listens to the podcast, uh, leave a note, <laughs> right? But uh, uh, yeah, for for me as uh, as a as an ex Java developer or Java developer, it actually uh, did ring a bell, and I thought, okay, fine, some syntax is different, but uh, some syntax I can can. Uh, uh, identify again, right? Um, and I can still use uh, the Java uh, system methods and stuff like this, right? Which I really enjoyed or appreciated, right? Um, there are also shortcuts built in, right? So instead of uh, using something like system dot blah blah blah, right? Um, you you can just do something like thread dot sleep, right? Instead of uh, uh, using the fully qualified name uh, without importing our, uh, the uh, entire our you namespace. You mean like a using statement in C-sharp? <laughs> okay. No, it's actually... <laughs> You even don't need to. I think you even don't need to to import something, right? And in, in our, okay. um, so you don't need to import the uh, the namespace. Let's say what you need. There are just shortcuts for stuff which is often used, right? Uh, gotcha. Let's say and uh, yeah, the way how constructors are done, I actually liked in Java. This is something which looks never really nice, right? Uh, overloading constructors uh, in this case they they kind of uh, have a default constructor which you can uh, kind of uh, declare directly where you de declare your class right so my public class uh, colon and then are my constructor with the parameters and so on if I'm not totally or wrong uh, don't have the syntax in mind but uh, something like that and then you can specialize constructors more easily by by basically uh, having a line which is saying hey uh, my constructor with this uh, parameters is based on this constructor with this set of parameters right uh, which oh, i also right. 
so like a base call in in C++. Awesome. Yeah, which is uh, which is okay. much nicer than than using this uh, uh, super uh, method in uh, in Java, right? Where you basically say, okay, fine, hey, uh, this is my constructor, and now I'm calling super with the parameters, right, of the other constructor. So this Although is although the some... super stuff is readable, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I, I personally think it's uh, it's it's nicer to have this in, in kind of the signature of the constructor sure. instead of sure. uh, kind of calling making it mandatory to have super or whatever as the first call and then pass it anyway over, right? Yeah. And, and then uh, what I also like about Kotlin uh, is that it has some functional programming aspects. Uh, I'm not sure where they borrowed it or. I saw something like this already in JavaScript, um, in a, in a sense, right? Where you can basically assign functions to variables and stuff like this. And uh, oh, this lambdas also... are totally, you know, JavaScript yeah, is, lambdas. is lambdas all over. Yeah, lambdas, lambdas, lambdas indeed, lambdas. right? Lambdas indeed, where you basically pass a, or let's say, um, a function as a parameter or whatever, right? But uh, yeah, mm. uh, you can also kind of uh, assign them directly to variables, which is maybe the same thing at the end if you think about it, right? But um, yeah, um, so uh, so you can, for instance, say, hey, are my function sleep with the argument time, which is long, is uh, equal to the the method uh, thread dot sleep uh, with the argument time, right? Or something like that, which I That's pretty kind cool. of find very nice uh, that uh, I think they say that uh, Kotlin functions are first class which means that they can be stored in variables and data structures passed as arguments and are, are returned from other higher order functions you can operate gotcha. with functions in any way that is possible for other non-function values right yeah I, I like that it's very useful for little filter functions and things like that <clears throat> exactly exactly yeah, or, yeah. I mean there's also something which I didn't get uh, out of the box uh, I have to say well, maybe I'm, I'm still not getting it entirely but uh, that's just me uh, maybe for instance they they kind of have this uh, tendency to have everything um let's say uh final by default so the classes are final so you can't inherit from them them by default which is different from java right so they're oh, they're basically sealed by default okay yeah um, i think classes are by default protected or um, yeah okay. usually you make them public anyway so so in, in java there you basically have open versus final uh, and uh, classes are by default final and can't be inherited uh, and if you want to to mark that they need to be inherited you I need like to use in the open keyword right and for me this the, the question was a little bit why is that but maybe it totally makes I, sense for you i can probably i can give you my speculation why that is but but carry on no it's fine give it well, I mean. yeah so so my speculation is in there's been a movement in the last years and i think probably even longer than that to say that inheritance is overused because in the real world you know we, we all learn this example right there's animal and then dog inherits from uh. animal and cat inherits from animal that sort of stuff but that doesn't really happen all that much in the real world so in the real world you have your class that class has the functionality in there and that's very rare it's very rare that somebody inherits from that class and changes the functionality because because that tends to create code that is hard to trace 
right? If there's a bit of functionality in in that class, you know, in the derived class, and and that calls the class above, that that tends to be confusing. That's why we don't do it that much anymore. The only inheritance, you know, I, I see for the last years, and the only inheritance I do is with model classes, right? So you have a base customer, and you have you know your your customer post, your customer create model, I should say, and your customer update model. Right. So if you have an API and the models you you post and you get from an API, that's where I would use inheritance. But outside of that, I, I tend to find that it creates confusing code. That's why I quite like that, that these classes are final by default. So, so you mean that, uh, that reflects that tendency. Right? The tendency is more to I heard about it already, right? Um, yes, composition I, rather than inheritance. Yeah, composition instead of inheritance. I mean, fine. Um, I I personally um, would stick with object-oriented analyzers, right? So there there is a well-described procedure how to derive uh, oh yeah your, your classes, right? And uh, if uh, our, uh, the object-oriented analyzers would indicate that uh, you should inherit, right? Then I would do it, let's say, right? But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in this sense, uh, I agree, right? Uh, currently, a lot of frameworks, MVC frameworks, and so on, they are they are more working with model classes and uh, let's say the actual business logic is somewhere else whereby in actual pure object or in programming uh, you you assume that your class doesn't have just properties uh, and getters and setters right mm. which is the you, it has you assume logic in it. yeah you assume that the class has logic in it and then inheritance makes much more sense right but uh, given that a lot of frameworks currently more um, don't use it this way right um, so they they don't basically see yeah. the logic within the class but have own uh, kind of services that are using just the model, uh, let's say, right, mm -hmm. which is described uh, as a class. It totally makes sense to compose it from my point of view. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. Just to, yeah. That's what what you see these days: Pocos and then service classes that perform the business logic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, plain yeah. old Java objects or, or Pojos if you prefer Pojos you know? yeah. Pocos for In me my, Pojos yeah. for you Pojos for me yeah. uh, anyway um, yeah uh, and uh, another thing is uh yeah, Kotlin doesn't really like null values. And, and actually, I mean, this is maybe a positive thing uh, because um, a null pointer exception is always something totally unexpected, right? And um, so you you would uh, kind of need to handle it in, in a way that's not very not very structured or maybe as a, as a kind of generic handling of exceptions or whatever, right? And... Uh, uh, so I'd say this way, I agree that if you have code which is explicitly handling a null pointer exception, right? And not just as an actual exception, but uh, kind of as an error, then there is something odd, right? Because you ex yeah. assume that uh, that uh, um, something doesn't have a well-defined state and you as the developer are responsible to ensure that it has a well-defined state. Yeah, right? you should be checking for that. And you uh, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So which which means that, uh, that uh, handling null pointer exceptions by intention, it's kind of odd right because uh, you could have avoided them in the first place uh, which means that uh, that uh, maybe this is the motivation by by having this uh, null safety let's say right uh, 
which means that uh, they they kind of are by def by default uh, types are not nullable or the values of those types are not nullable. You can define that they are nullable, but then you need to uh, do it explicitly. Let's say right. That's um, very interesting because uh, the newest version of C sharp has introduced something like that. So in C sharp, if you have sort of a custom class or something and a variable of that type of the class, it was always implicitly nullable. But the newer versions of C-sharp allow you to say, okay, this must never be null. If it's ever null, you know, if the analyzer finds it's ever null, that's an immediate compilation fault. Right? Yeah. So it's interesting. interesting. Exactly. Kotlin does the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, it's null safe, let's say, and so you have to define yeah, like if you it. want to have nullable types. And regarding this kind of yeah explicit null pointer exception handling, it makes sense. But on the other hand side, right, uh, sometimes you just have undefined values or values where you where you don't yet have uh, the state which you you intend. And uh, what we did in the past in Java, at least, uh, uh, again somehow questionable, I agree, is to initialize it just with a null, right? And then uh, if we yes. we're not careful enough, it stayed null, and then we we got a null pointer exception, which we kind of handled. And sometimes we handled it, as I said, by intention, right? <laughs> by just uh, kind of mm. uh, taking the risk, uh, um, yeah, with knowledge, let's say, that it might st still not be initialized, which is uh, maybe bad practice, right? So because uh, yeah, you should initialize reasons because sort of exception bubbling out is always very slow so it's much easier to test for null yeah exactly not just performance also code readability and so on right yes or, absolutely it's I, I mean, what it enforced for me, right, uh, the fact that uh, the code needed to be null safe, let's say, right, was that I thought about uh, kind of useful default values, right, uh, and said, okay, fine, instead of initializing my variables with null, I would initialize them with the default value and then would have yeah. uh, if, uh, useful checks in my code if the value is not the default value or whatever, right, and then kind of deal with the situation explicitly, which is maybe the intention behind it, right? That's pretty good. I like that. <coughs> yeah. Um, I talked a lot now, right? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> is, is your voice giving up? Yeah, slightly. So maybe, uh, uh, yeah, what's your favorite language then? Um, so I mean, my my, mine is Kotlin and yours is... So mine is is in Stace TypeScript, but this you know this talk has given me a lot to think about, a lot to try. So, but yeah, but TypeScript is still my favorite language because it brings all the niceness from C Sharp and combines that with the flexibility of JavaScript. Even though you use TypeScript at any point, if you want to, you can step down to the JavaScript level and do JavaScripty stuff. Not that you ever really need to, right? But you know, you can. All the flexibility is still there. So every every object in JavaScript is a hash map, which is a good thing to know, right? So every object, you can just stick another property on that object, you know, just add some new stuff. And I like that flexibility. And TypeScript, with TypeScript, you can say, you know, you can limit that. You can say, okay, I only allow this subset of features, but you can explicitly tell TypeScript, okay, just just back off i know what i'm doing i'm adding this property now and there's nothing you can do about it right so you have the best of both worlds i like that so that's why i say typescript is is not only my favorite language is the best language that exists 
There you go. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a statement, man! Right? Because I'm not opinionated at all. Uh, exactly. But I, I mean, I like that we have a kind of friendly discussion about this stuff, right? I already had heated up discussions with other developers around programming languages, right? So, um, uh, uh, and to be fair, right? Um, in summary, I would say every programming language or uh, yeah, ha has a kind of has a kind of. Um, justification maybe not every but uh, yeah, most of them exactly. right so i would use c more for low level stuff right that's uh, the thing you know the right yeah. tool for the job right that's what it's about exactly it? exactly yeah. so um, yours is kotlin is it i mean I, I just started to work with kotlin and only one toy project for academic uh, uh reasons but uh, i have another one for academic uh, purposes which i'm currently uh, yeah, not finding the time to work on it, right? Uh, maybe, maybe uh, yeah. later, right? Sa same story. Um, I just wanted to to introduce. Uh, uh, someone asked me, "Hey, um, how how is this or that value serialized in Redis, right?" And uh, 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 indeed, you could just reference the Redis code, but uh, it's much nicer to to kind of re-implement it and understand it this way, right? Uh, whereby I have to say, Redis is quite quite readable, so it's written in C, but it's uh, it's really neat and nice and cleanly written code, right? So yeah, I'm uh, sure it is. Yeah, yeah. Which means, in theory, I could just reference the, the pieces there, but um, it's also a kind of function of remembering it by myself. So if I wrote something like this by myself, then it's easier for me to remember this stuff later. Right? Yes, because you've processed it. I, exactly. You know, that, that's that's why they tell pupils to to not just you know just not just listen, but sort of write it down on cue cards, and you know, yeah, it it goes it goes I, through the brain. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, writing down some stuff just for the purpose of writing down, I don't know, right? This doesn't work very well with me usually. No, but that, that's but, not what uh, I, no, I, I find it interesting because I see, you know, I have two sons and I see sort of w how they learn and how they are told to learn. And what, what they are given, they are given, you know, texts or videos and they are told to, okay, so here's a bunch of cue cards. Just write down the most important things that you hear in this video on those cue cards. That forces you, A, to listen, and B, yeah, to indeed. process it and distill, you know, the most important stuff. Yeah, makes, makes and, sense. And I really like that approach. It's yeah, very clever. Makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, the, the the university talks we had in the past were actually the the different uh, in a different style, right? So we just had a kind of um, professor talking in front of us, and we kind of wrote every single sentence he 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 said down, right? <laughs> By writing yeah. our own script, which I personally didn't appreciate, right? My my tendency no. was always to say, "Oh man, just give us a script, right?" And and some exercises uh, to process yeah. the knowledge which is in the script, and that's it, right? But yeah. I, because just anyway. copying down the whiteboard, you can do that if your brain is in idle mode. Exactly. Right? You yeah. can do that half asleep, and you're not processing anything. And after half an hour, it is right. After half it an is, hour, yeah. it, it is an idle mode. <laughs> Sure, right. <laughs> Hopefully not just for me, right? Anyway, uh, so yeah, um, maybe last but not least, uh, let's talk a bit about horror stories and um, maybe not that, uh, uh, yeah, scary, let's say. But one thing I realized is that sometimes people 
like a paradigm too much, right? So uh, yes. like reactive programming, for instance. I, I can understand why it's cool and why it's nice and why you want to use it. But uh, uh, as we said before, the right tool for the right job and don't just basically use something which sounds cool for the purpose of, uh, yeah, playing around with it for actual production code, right? There's a difference between having a toy <laughs> project and uh, just uh, playing around with stuff and there you can do it whatever you want, right? But I had situations that I kind of had developers uh, that uh, worked together with me or uh, and they, maybe me as a project manager or whatever, right? Um, and uh, are they, they basically just enjoyed functional programming at this point of time too much. There, mm. there was uh, there was a period of time where functional programming was kind of getting a little bit of a hype, and uh, so what they did is I think it was actually uh, starting with .NET, right, with C Sharp. So uh, it, it it maybe it didn't start with C Sharp, but C Sharp mixed in lambdas very early, right, in the in True. the process. Yeah, yeah, that uh, In comparison early. to other languages, right, and people tended then to overuse this all the time, right. So I. I had I once had basically code or a few whatever maybe not hundreds of lines maybe hundreds of lines who knows but uh, uh, a good amount of code right and every, every single line was a functional statement right and and basically I couldn't even read what was written there and this was actual logic right this was actual well, business yeah. logic and and it kind of uh, didn't make any sense right so to process this this functional programming style you would really think very deep whereby something like object-oriented programming is, is or the style is human readable from the very beginning right maybe it's it was just me not not being able to process no. it fast enough but i the, the problem is also debugging this stuff is a nightmare right debugging those yeah. lambdas <laughs> is, is is kind of what the hell right it's the uh, engine just does its thing somewhere deep inside yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and to, re to rewrite it then and whatever so so basically my horror story is that i had once a project where someone well, not naming the person here right <laughs> developer kind of enjoyed functional programming too much right because it was a cool new feature maybe in dotnet uh, and uh, and then kind of uh, and kind of overstressed it to a degree that the code was no longer human readable or debuggable at all right so yeah, which, yeah. I, I agree with you that's totally one of my bugbears as well it's it's that old saying isn't it if you have a shiny new hammer every problem starts looking like a nail you know and if you can't read it that's i don't think that's a fault of yours that's a fault of well that's the fault of the project the fault of the coders because you don't write code for the machine you write code for the person and code should be readable exactly right? that's the whole point if if code doesn't have to be readable you could just just junk out the assembly uh. right it's, you know it has to be readable and that's yeah for me with horror stories that's that's one of the, it's not horror story it's bugbears so i you know I, I see that a lot this sort of shiny hammer thing then i see things like you know oh yeah we, we've migrated to this new technology why oh because it's cool and it's what everybody uses okay but but what are your business benefits 
I already said it's cool and what everybody uses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Fine. I mean, we, we need to give developers <laughs> credit, right? Developers, and we, we are also developers in a sense, uh, for sure. I've done it for myself. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we do it by ourselves, right? We, we just uh, identify, oh, there's something new, a new cool framework. I want to learn about it. So uh, let's mix it in into the next project because uh, it, it seems to be promising, right? But uh, you're right. At the end, there's there are often situations where it's actually not justified, right? So... Uh, using this instead of the other stuff, having an effort of, I don't know, 20 men days or whatever, right? Just because it looks cooler and doesn't bring any, any additional benefit for the end user, right? Or even for you as or the person who is maintaining exactly. this code, right? Is, uh, is just a bad idea, right? Exactly. And both of us, you and I, we have been in separate startups. And that sort of thing can kill an entire company sort of, you know, an extra 20 men days of development without any additional features, you know, that, that can bring a company to collapse, potentially in an extreme case. A small case. startup, yeah. yeah. So I, you have to, you have, I think you have always have to think about what is the benefit for the business. Is that investment worth it? And in many cases, it isn't. Because the, the technology you use is probably good enough. If you expect to just do maintenance, you know, no, no more traumatic features, then, you know, why, why do that major migration is there appointed? Exactly. I mean, there, there might be, I mean, there are good reasons sometimes to switch the technology, right? Yes. Uh, so for instance, I have future proof. Yeah. yeah future proof. I have seen companies that use PHP as their programming language and platform and so on. And not that I'm hating PHP. It's, it's okay. Right. For what it is. Uh, but, uh, yeah. um, it has some scalability limitations, let's say, right. Um, on a, on a single box yes. and, uh, um, yeah, it's it's I, I don't know, right? So at some point uh, they are they it's then justified to say, okay, fine, maybe we think about using something which is fulfilling our requirements better, right? Um, or or they mitigate it by scaling it out to or to a, a large degree, let's say, right? Um, which is also okay. But anyway, anyway, right? A very special situation. Uh, this case yeah. but but as i yeah. say if, if php works for you and you already have a lot of investment in php then you yeah know, there has to be a very good reason to get get away from it yeah no. but i mean there, there are sometimes non-functional requirements that are then kind of influencing yeah, this performance. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, over the time right that be performance that be scalability uh, and so on right um so I'm, I'm not sure if uh, um this is true for the latest version of php but what i kind of have seen is that uh uh, PHP is driving this idea of being uh, stateless uh, to 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 a point where it becomes a bit strange from the point of view of the database system, right? So because what? you have nah, was PHP uh, ever not strange? Nah, I mean the uh, what I have seen, and again, right, I'm seeing it more from the point of view of the database system in the sense is that uh, uh, PHP basically for every request which came in, right, so running an Apache right. in this case, right, uh, kind of needed to open a new connection, right, because uh, there was no connection pooling by by default. Maybe you can work oh, around good. by using some native stuff and so on, right. Yeah, uh, but uh, what what happened is basically that uh, uh, each request 
device needed a dedicated uh, connection, right? Um, let's say, uh, in this sense. So, and it was not easily possible to pool this stuff at this point. Um, and uh, so the number of operations per second were basically limited by the number of connections you could connections. open to the server, mm -hmm. right? Which is kind of a little bit strange because when you schedule the connections in a useful way, right, um, then we would not have this problem, right? Well, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's sort of shifting the blame, you know, PHP saying, hey, you know, it's, it's no longer my fault if things are slow, you know, it's the database's fault. Uh, yeah, I wonder maybe. If, if that was the reason. I'm not sure. No, I think it's just a conceptual thing. It was at least, right? Sounds very dodgy. Yeah. <coughs> maybe you can, on a native level, then implement it again, right? Um, so, well, so maybe uh, the end, right? Uh, the interpreter is, uh, I think, uh, written in C or whatever, right? And then you can plug in whatever you want and uh, maybe use connection pooling again on on this level. Um, not sure, right? But uh, maybe. There were some performance uh, implications of using PHP in the past, uh, which I had identified. And uh, yeah, again, I'm not a PHP developer. So if we have PHP developers here, then uh, yeah. And you think that as listeners, right? And you think that I, I talk totally, total bullshit right now, right? Then just let us know and we I will apologize in the next episode then, right? Yeah. Anyway. Or, um, you know, co come on the show and... You know, I say PHP is crap and you can change my mind. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there is a new website. Maybe I can mention this. Uh, it's, uh, yes, I'm not sure how, crumpy-old-coders.org, right? Or hyphen, if you don't like minus, right? Uh, so, yeah, if you want to know more about us, if you want to follow us on Twitter, or if you want to provide feedback, then go to crumpy minus old minus coders org right and uh, yeah uh, let us know what you think uh, about the podcast let us know or any any kind of feedback um, if you think we said something wrong or uh, if you liked something whatever any kind of feedback is good feedback from our point of view right yes okay um, yeah in this sense right uh, thanks for listening uh, Thomas thanks for being with me or us right uh, today and uh, yeah well, I'm not sure what we do as the next episode uh, yeah maybe, we'll figure it out yeah maybe people can give us some ideas right so we actually the last time was our first episode and I'm I was kind of amazed um, around the positive feedback from several persons persons we we knew let's say right uh, uh, a few foreign listeners let's say uh, but uh, uh, some friends of ours or other persons we with whom we are connected uh, via social networks or whatever right so they they kind of contacted us gave positive feedback um so keep it up really nice podcast whatever right and uh, uh, we also had uh, more listeners than so than i imagined uh, for the first episode i have to admit right and so uh, yeah um and we are now also not just on SoundCloud, we're also on Spotify and iTunes, which makes it maybe easier for you to listen to us as well, right? Um, but more more information on, uh, let's say, the website crumpy-old-coders.org, right? So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much. Hopefully, you know, see you next time.
and we took too much time, Thomas, right? So just saying. Yeah. That, uh, oh my god. Man, it was planned for one it's hour. It's getting longer. And, and I think episode in... 10 will be 10 hours or something. Yeah, episode 2 is nearly 2 hours. Yeah, We need to <laughs> fix this.